Alright, welcome back people. We're going to record another podcast today about some other property myths that we want to share with you guys and just sort of explain why they might not be completely wrong, but they're not Necessarily they're nuanced. True. Yeah, they're nuanced in their in their answers to what they are, I guess. First one we're going to cover for, for today was when you're buying an investment property, it's best to buy close to where you live. Um, I guess partly this can be true if you live in an area where the property market's performing really well. Um, maybe it's got really strong economic factors that are going to push prices to go upwards. Yep. Lack of supply of land seems to be one of the factors that yep. a lot of these investment people tell us is is a key. Things like job opportunities from varied uh, industry, so it's not just reliant on mining or tourism or whatnot. Yep, low stock on market. Yeah, so... Why Why wouldn't it be... Why is it maybe a myth yeah. in your eyes, Dan? So, look, I think people... Traditionally, p- people buying investments bought near where they live because they figure, okay, we like it here, so other people like it here. You know, they know the market. Um, there was a stat we saw a while back. Um, something like 85% of people bought within 20 kilometres of where they live. So, right. you know, when you're at the barbecue or talking to people, you can say... Um, you know, if you're living in Richmond, you know, I've got a rental in Coburg and people know where that is. Whereas, you know, if you said, oh, I've got a rental in Penguin, um, you know, where's that? You know, well, it's, you know, north coast of Tasmania and blah, 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 blah. So people would, you know, and people say, you know, if there's anything need, needing doing, I can, you know, I can, I can fix it, especially if they're handy, unlike me. If they went to, you know, it might be something that... Um, um, you know, when the tenants move out and need to repaint, they can repaint it. You know, there's, there's plenty of reasons why people buy investments near where they live. But it's one of those things that one of the th- key things with investing, if you can, is to try and have a uh, balanced portfolio. So if you're buying, buying shares, if you're buying, you know, 100 grand's worth of shares and you want to buy four shares, you probably wouldn't buy four bank shares. You know, you'd probably buy a bank share, maybe a supermarket, mm. a mining company, and a tech stock, because you want to balance your portfolio. So, if you if you're buying, if you if you live in an area, buying there as well for an investment may not be the smartest thing. So, have a look at, um, you know, there's plenty of resources out there from the guys we follow, Investor Kit, um, Ripehouse, Dash Dot, Terry Ryder, Rich Harvey, all the, all the usual names, John Linderman. Um, check out some of their resources and you know, there's plenty of stuff on there about where to invest. Um, don't necessarily go to an open home three doors from your house and the um, agent tell you this is a great investment because they're trying to sell you something. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's not necessarily best to buy where you live, near where you live. Another myth is this credit card one. Um, when we talk to people that we're helping get home loans, like clients of ours, a a, a a common question they ask is, you know, I have a credit card, does it matter? Is it going to affect the, the application? And a myth coming from this is often a misconception people have that your credit card limit or like having a credit card won't affect your bank, your bank application if you're trying to get a home loan. Can you explain why credit cards matter and how, like why they matter to a bank that you have them and why a credit card limit can affect the amount of money you might borrow from a bank? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so banks work on a thing called net monthly income. 
And what they do is they take your income, less your super, less your tax, less any other commitments you've got, you know, might have child support or help debt. Um, and then look, they look at your living expenses and they look at your other commitments, so like car loans and that sort of stuff. So if you're earning a net amount of, say, you know, $5,000 a month, and I've just got our Money Saver Home Loans Borrowing Power Calculator open in front of me, and you've got a credit card limit of um, zero, and you are looking, you know, how much how much can I borrow? You can borrow two hundred ninety-seven thousand dollars. So that's if you net five grand a month. Your um, I'll put down that you're single. If you're single, no dependents, net salary of five grand a month, and you've got no car loans, and your living expenses are you know ordinary living expenses for a single person. Yeah, you can borrow $451,000. Now, if we put in that you've got a $10,000 car uh, credit card limit, it drops by 50 grand. So you've lost 50 grand for having a $10,000 credit card limit. It doesn't matter whether you've got zero balance on that card or 10,000 on that card. All that matters is the limit because mm. when you get the loan, you have the capacity to run up that ten grand. So, if you want to improve your borrowing capacity, um, drop your credit card limit. If you're not using, you know, people have old credit cards. They might have a Latitude card from Harvey Norman. They might have. Uh, we had one client who had a, still had a credit card with his ex-wife, and he'd been with his new wife for nine years. So, it was on his credit report and he didn't realise, he thought they closed it. So get your credit report, get rid of all the credit that you don't need. If you've got Afterpay, ZipPay, Hum, if you've got credit and credit inquiries coming out of your backside, it's not a good sign to a lender because it just shows that when in strife you try borrow rather than cut back. So mm. yeah, so that's that's the important thing about credit card limits. As I said, you know, a 10 grand credit card limit can reduce your borrowing capacity by 50 grand. So if you've got 30 grand of credit card limits, 150 grand so just uh, yeah, just be aware of that and the next one is a myth or misconception that car loans and car leases vehicle leases don't matter to an application um i'm assuming it's sort of similar to credit cards and mm-hmm. how they're treated as a liability with existing debt that yep. you're paying uh towards you know with uh, as debt you're already covering before you try to take on any debt from a bank, but can you yep. explain why they don't? Why it matters whether you have a car lease yep. or a car loan? Yeah. So with car loans, um, they're paid from your after-tax salary normally. So when a bank looks at how much money you have after all your commitments um, for you to make repayments on a loan they will take car loan repayments into account. So using our um, example that we were just using a minute ago, you've got a single person, no dependents, earning net 5,000 a month, average living expenses. With no car loan, they can borrow 451 grand. Um, if we put in there that they've got a car loan repayment of 450 a month, their, their borrowing capacity drops to 392. So you've lost 59 grand in borrowing capacity by having a car loan. So if you've got a car, some people may have a car loan and have six grand owing on it, and they've got 20 grand in the bank. So one of the things we suggest to people is you pay the car loan out. Okay. Either before we apply or as part of, part of applying. Um, one of the big misconceptions for people is, especially if you salary sacrifice for a car, that because you salary sacrifice for a car, it's almost free. It's not. 
um, you pay, um, as part of the salary sacrifice, you're paying for the lease payment on the car, which is the loan repayment, as well as expenses, and it's coming out of your before tax salary. So if you've got car loans or leases, they do reduce your borrowing capacity. So just be aware of that. Um, another misconception is that all banks will lend you the same amount of money. Um, I guess where, with bro- like the, the ability or I guess the advantage that mortgage brokers have, as I think of it, is that we have software where we can put in all your details into a bunch of little boxes yep. and we'll get told in a list format which banks will lend you what amount of money at what interest rate, at what, interest rate what annual fees are involved and what products will come along with that. Yep. That is something that a normal person who is just going to Google any bank that they've heard of, which is usually one of the big four or maybe a, a subsidiary of a big four that they don't know is owned by one, mm-hmm. you know? Yep, um, yep. And that's sort of why... A broker has an advantage over someone just going straight to a bank that will offer them one fixed rate offer, one variable rate offer, and one investment offer. So what reasons um, what reasons do lenders have for giving some people more money and some people less money in a different, at a different bank for the same person? Does yeah, that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. So banks, all lenders look at people differently. So it... Um, Usually with your, your net salary or your, sorry gross pay, less tax and super, it's pretty much the same. But if you get bonuses, some banks will accept 100% of bonus, some will only accept 80% of bonus. Um, some will accept 100% of overtime, some 80% of overtime. If you're getting child support, some will accept child support up to age, say, 16, others only up to um, age 11. Um, there's you know, hundreds of different things that they take into account. Banks have different um, calculations for living expenses. Um, so, you know, as you said, if you go, if if you go into, uh, I was going to say Richmond, but you couldn't go to NAB today because it was mm-hmm. shut. But if you went downtown Richmond, Victoria, and you went to, if you went into Beyond Bank, and make a few inquiries and talk to someone, and they say, look, you know, you can borrow five hundred grand. And then you go next door and you might go to ANZ and they tell you 510. And then three doors down, you go to Westpac and they tell you 520. By the time, if you go to the fourth bank, those three other banks have probably put a mark on your credit file to say that you've made a credit inquiry. Because while they're doing, what they want to do is they want to do a quick credit check on you just to make sure that everything's fine before they give you that advice of how much they can lend you. If you come to a broker, through the software you mentioned, we can tell you roughly how much a bank will lend you. Um, most brokers have access to about 30 banks. Um, they're all different. They'll all lend you different amounts. Um, some will accept credit defaults. Some will, you know, you know if, if you, some will even accept you if you've been declared bankrupt. So, but not every bank will. So, yeah. And that, the banks that might accept you and give you money who have been bankrupt, you might be charged a higher interest rate yep. to offset their risk or something. Can yeah. I ask a question? This is not part of the myths. So every time you make a credit inquiry, and I think yep. we've talked about this with Victoria Costa as well, does your credit score drop for each inquiry to a bank? Potentially. So why 
why does your credit why do you get it seems like you're getting if you're just going if you're not going with a broker you're just shopping around to each lender and saying this is how much i earn here's the paperwork i want to buy a house around this price what would you be able to give me as a borrowing capacity it's almost like you're being punished Mm -hmm for wanting to ask around to different banks. Yeah, that seems not, a bit stupid. Yeah, it's not that you're being punished. It's just that it's recorded. And, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the fourth bank might assume that the other three have knocked you back. So, you so just, it's not recorded as if... So it's... It's I'll not have a to, decline. Yeah. So it's not that you've been declined finance. Um, it's it's basically that you've been inquiring. And it's it's probably more to do with... Um, more unsecured types of credit. So if you've got lots of um, inquiries to like, you know, those, those things where like payday lenders and yeah. um, short-term loans and all that sort of stuff, you know, if, if you're getting short-term loan, a lot of short-term loans or making a lot of inquiries or getting credit cards all the time, it just, the bank looks at it and, and broker looks at it and go, why would we lend half a million dollars to this person if they can't make repayments on time? Or they've got def- they haven't paid a phone bill, and it might be because they've moved house, or they might be in dispute, all that sort of stuff. But it's just yeah, yeah just okay. stuff you got to keep in mind. But all banks, all banks look at you differently. Um, some there might be bank A lends you four fifty, bank B might lend you five fifty on the same information. Okay. Um, another we talk about all the time is a myth of like banks reward loyal customers and sometimes we'll talk to a bank and oh sorry we'll talk to a client who has said like you know I'm with a certain bank I've been with them for eight or nine years like surely they can do a good like deal for me and that's not really ever the case in our experience like most of them don't give a fuck yeah I, um, I wouldn't say they don't give a fuck I, I'd say Josh Frydenberg called it the loyalty tax. Um, A bank will, if anyone has ever had a phone call from their bank offering them a lower interest rate, we'd love to hear from them because you you would probably do a shopping mall tour with you because you're the only person that's ever happened to. But banks don't reward loyal customers because they're about trying to get new customers. They give new customers lower rates and refinance cashbacks a lot of the time to try and get, get your business and then try and keep you as a loyal customer. And as we've talked about, your relationship with your bank is like a lot of relationships you'll have. Um, and sometimes people get comfortable in relationships and they just, uh, it's too hard to change, I just couldn't be bothered. But the numbers of people refinancing is at record levels at the moment, mainly because of the RBA's work in um, keeping interest rates low till 2024 or beyond. Not, um, you know, we're about to probably get our eighth rate rise in a row in just under two weeks in, De- in December the 6th. So, yeah, banks don't reward loyal customers, so you've almost got to be a new customer all the time. So um, talk to your broker. If you've, been, if you've been in a loan for a couple of years, you know, what we do is we suggest to people that they ring their bank and ask for a better deal. We've had one customer get a new customer rate by doing making that phone call, which is really good. Happy days. But most of them will get a small reduction, but nowhere near what the new customers are getting. It's better to buy old um, compared... Oh, sorry, it's better to buy new than buying an older property is another misconception. Yeah. I feel like this can go either way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, like a lot of the time when people say, should I buy a new place or should I buy an old place? The answer is always depends. 
Yeah. It depends on what you're after. So, um, you know, the purpose of buying properties is get capital growth most of the time and also decent rent. Um, you know, some of the buyer's agents won't buy new. Um, other people won't sell anything but new. So it just, it just depends on what you're looking to do. There's no right or wrong answer. Generally, older places are on bigger blocks of land and the land is what goes up in value. Um, newer places have usually less maintenance, um, better depreciation if you're an investor. Um, you can usually get higher rent because they're newer. But if you're buying in an area where there's 50 new places and they're all coming on at the same time and you're an investor, you may not get the quoted rent that you are led to believe because there's so much other stock available. So <clears throat> it's always depends upon um, depends upon your strategy. We've had clients um, who have bought new places in growth new places in growth locations and done you know fantastically well. We've had other clients buy older places in growth locations and do equally as well. So yeah, it's just yeah, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. The other one we're going to cover, capital cities are the best places to buy. Again, like depending on your strategy and what you're trying to do, like we hear from there, we know of buyers agents whose main strategy is buying good investments in capital cities, mainly Melbourne or Sydney, that are maybe not going to make you money while you're holding on to it. Maybe you'll lose money on while you hold on to the property and the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. But the amount of money it will, the amount of value growth it'll see in capital growth, uh, by the time you sell it, will more than um, make up for the loss. So that's like an idea of some people that invest in capital cities. But um, obviously, there's people like Simon Presley who talk a lot about their favorite growth potential locations are all in regional areas compared to capital cities. the argument can be made that maybe capital cities have the highest fluct the the greatest fluctuations in property mm-hmm. price change. You know, yeah. um, but any thoughts about that one? Yeah, you mentioned um, Simon and the crew from Propertyology. They have a good graphic that's available on their website. If you go to their website and look under the latest news and insights, um, they have a graph which which talks about capital growth. And talks about um, you know the top twenty places in Australia for capital growth. Not quite a lot of them are not capital cities. So they're places like Byron Bay, the Sunshine Coast, Bendigo, um, you know, Dubbo, you know those sorts of places. Uh, Hobart, um, like Hobart is a capital, I suppose. But yeah, you know, they're not your they're not your normal ones like Sydney and Melbourne. So yeah, there's yeah. You don't necessarily have to buy in capital cities to get capital growth. It depends upon your budget, depends upon what you, you know, what your strategy is and what your time frame is. Um, you know, the, the guys from Propertyology bought a client of ours a property about a year ago um, in Harvey Bay, so you know, up sort of north of Sunshine Coast, and I think uh, paid four eighty five, and it's now valued at six twenty, so it's gone up over hundred grand in a year. So you don't need, you know, you can get into property a lot cheaper outside of the capital cities. And here we're talking about investment. If you're buying a place to live in, 
you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't apply because it's about where you, where do you want to live, not where do other people want to live. And that's that's the, the key thing is, you know, where is the best place to buy a property that lots of other people want to rent? Because if lots of other people want to rent, the rents will go up. And if the rents go up, the prices go up. Um, another is renting is dead money. Uh, I feel like Simon Presley's done some work on explaining why this isn't always the case when you weigh up if you wanted to rent and invest. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, to me, I don't really get this sa- this saying. Like, whenever I'd hear people on other podcasts say, like, oh, you know, like, my parents always taught me rent money's dead money. It's yeah. like, I don't really understand what that means. Yeah, what, what, what it's sort of come from, say, my demographic, a lot of it was that you got a job and bought a house. That was, that's what you did. You, you got a job, got married, got a house, had kids. Um, worked, might have got the pension, you know, since 92 you get super, um, you know, you retire, you might do a bit of travel and then you cark it and then it's the end. Um, <laughs> so what would what would normally happen is, you know, the thing was renting is dead money and people would say, oh, you, you know, you're paying off someone else's mortgage and you're doing this and you're doing that. Um, if all you're doing is renting and you're not investing, it's probably right because you want to be investing so that you're growing your asset base. So with renting is dead, renting's not necessarily dead money, but there's a strategy called rent vesting, which we've talked about a bit, where you live where, rent where you wanna live, and you invest in places that are either more affordable or where lots of other people wanna wanna live. So yeah, I remember the guys from Dashdot talking about uh, they lived in Bondi and they were paying 600 a week for um, an apartment. If they were to buy that, their repayment would be 1150 a week, probably more now that interest rates have gone up. So for them, rent wasn't dead money. It was a smart decision because it was cheaper to rent where they wanted to live than it was to buy. So mm. um, renting is not necessarily dead money. Um, but if you've been renting a long, long time and you don't, you're not growing your asset base by investing in um, shares. I was going to say crypto, but I probably shouldn't anymore. Um, but who knows? Um, or buying investment properties in growth locations. Um, yeah, it could be dead money. I think too. Um, if you're just talking about maybe pros pros of renting that aren't more so about the financial side of it, like. You've got the advantage of mobility. You're not if you so like the apartment I'm we're in right now that I rent that we're renting or whatever. There's issues with parts of it that'll get fixed at some point. Yeah. My rent, part of my rent will probably go to that, mm-hmm. but most of that is going to be on the landlords to fix. That's yeah. them going to be out of pocket. There's yeah. a lot of like short term pros of not having to do you know like having to um not having to worry about paying for that shit not having to worry about paying council rates insurance body corporate yeah Yeah. so there's a lot of pros to renting too um it was funny talking to mike mortlock he was saying like he does worry that people that he meets sometimes that rent up almost feel like they have to not quantify but like they have to justify why they're renting as in we're renting but we're going to buy a house like we're going to do that too like that's our goal as if there's something wrong with renting and i don't think it should be like that no it's not and it's as you say it always depends on your strategy um yeah your 
you might be renting because you've just moved to an area. Um, you might be you might have relocated for work and you're only there for a year or two. Um, yeah, you might be renting while you're saving for a house. You know, there's there's plenty of reasons why people rent. There's nothing wrong with renting. But you just got to maybe think that if, you know, one of the stats we saw coming through a couple of weeks back was the major was the large number of people over 45 who are renting. And you just got to think if you're listening and you're in your um, early to mid 20s or early 30s, when I'm 50, do I want to be renting? Or do I want to, am I happy to rent now, but I've got a plan not to be renting in the future? Because one of the stats we saw quite a while ago was one of the major differences between a good retirement and a not so good retirement financially is, is whether you range your house or not. Yeah. So um, yeah, just keep that in mind. Last one is just the concept, the the myth. It's good to buy with family and friends. Yeah. Um. Again, if you set and again, like some of this gets into things that we're not really well suited to be speaking on, and it's obviously consult like a tax specialist for things like trusts and setting up other ways of investing yeah. with your family. You can do that in a in a good way where you structure it properly, fa- investing with family or friends. But you can also do it in a bad way that might end up fucking you over at some point in the future. So it's yeah. it's best to sort of uh, approach investing with friends or family uh, wary of covering your ass. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost like the the lawyers we talk to who help people with this stuff basically say you've got to go in with an exit strategy. So you've got to go in working out if it all turns to shit or if someone something happens to someone. Yeah, you might you might get say brothers and sisters, there might be three people go into a property and then you know within a year two of them aren't talking or within two years one of them meets someone and wants to buy a property with that person and then wants their money out. So yeah, just just yeah, it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it can get complicated. So make sure you've got an agreement that's drawn up by a lawyer, not you know put on the back of a beer coaster after nineteen beers, and that you've got uh, you've got an exit strategy on what's going to happen if it all if it all comes a cropper. It's hard to get every like it's really hard to guarantee three people. It's hard to guarantee myself mm. like with what I'm doing with the house in Dubbo, like I wouldn't feel comfortable getting into this sort of investing thing with one of my mates. Yeah. Cause it's just, you have to be, you have to be so on the same page as ridiculous. Yeah. Cause if one of you is off that same page at any point, you might have to get money to buy them out. And yeah. if you had planned for neither of you to ever have to do that, you're probably not going to talk to the guy again because you've he's fucked you around oh, exactly, when yeah. you didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, yeah, get an agreement in place. Make sure everyone's clear on what happens, when it's going well, who's putting money in, when's money going in. Who's paying for what? Yeah. Is it all equal? Like, yeah, how, you know, how's it being divvied up? And if someone wants out, what happens? Um, because, you know, selling... You know, the, the, if there's three people buying and one wants to sell, um, the other two may not have the money to buy that person so how do you do that do they then sell the asset and you know how does it get divvied up and all that sort of stuff so yeah talk to a lawyer get an agreement um and yeah just make sure you've got you've got your shit sorted easy um 
if people enjoy what we've done, we've got a few ways you can get in touch with us if you want to learn more about the home loan side of things with the, the brokerage. So um, moneysaverhomeloans.com.au is the best way for that. Uh, you can check us out on Facebook. Just type in Money Saver Home Loans. You'll find that one. Uh, there's Instagrams in the description box of every podcast we do along with other ways of reaching out. So, yep. Yep, and if you've got any questions, just yeah, let us know. And if you type in top 40 Australian property and finance podcasts into Google, you'll see a list of the top 40 and we're number six. So if you could share this with as many people as possible so we can rise up the charts, that would be good. Hell yeah.